Chapter One of Arctic A Study of the Marvels at the North Pole by Anna Adolph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chuck Williamson. Arctic A Study of the Marvels at the North Pole by Anna Adolph. Chapter One Saying, I will go with thee to yon isles of mystery. Always fond of the marvelous, I conceived a strong desire to go to the North Pole. To obviate the dangers of the trip, I invented a coach that was also ship and balloon. Its silken canopy is inflatable to strong wings or wide sails. Its wheels are wide-rimmed to glide over snow and paneled for water paddles. When it is finished and stored, I select some friends to accompany me, my most personal loved ones, a volatile fair-haired gent, my husband, and a fair-haired little maiden friend sit on the front seat. On the back seat are sitting my aged father and myself, our black eyes snapping with expectation. Waving my hands to the few gathered to see us off, I say, this undertaking is of desire to gain knowledge. Success, surmounting all obstacles, will take us to the summit of the round earth, where, Ages past as ages future will accord us first record. Charlie turns levers to start, as little May's mamma says, You will be the mascot, May Sarles, but I do not think you will go very far. Dubiously. You will change your mind, mamma, when I bring you home a little bear. <laughs> Makes us laugh. I will be glad to get you for my little bear. All the rest of us, I answered, will take care of her. No doubt, she replies, as far as you go in your odd rig, facetiously. Our wheels turn slowly and silently. Then, with a low tinkling of the strain, goodbye, sweetheart. May had slipped a music-box in one, wound to that harmony. We are Californians, and take the C.P. Railroad to our eastward route, our wheels being grooved to fit the track. Speeding merrily, we give vent to our imaginations of coming events. Will there really be a pole, Auntie? That is for us to find out, dear. I sometimes think there is a stem there covered with ice that holds the earth to an apple-planet tree. But the astronomers would have seen the tree, argues my father. They could not look so far, only as far as the other star-apples. May not the Milky Way be a branch, I suggest? We now become aware that a train is approaching on the single track that is hanging over the grade on the canyon side. We have no choice but to unfurl our wings and rise in the air. 
as the engineer blows his whistle. Brushing the pine-tree tops, we cross over the peak and seek the track on the other side of it, selecting an opening in a thicket for that purpose. Finding it occupied by miners digging away, we hallo, when they look every way but up, as we land in their midst as though dropped from the sky. Their consternation is depicted in set jaws, as we give military salute and roll off. This feat, so skillfully accomplished, denotes an expert hand in our motorman, who had been practicing faithfully as a bird to fly, a swimmer or cyclist. As exhilarant to him as to us, and much lessened our distance, causes May to clap her hands and ask, why not fly all the time? We want to save that force until we have more serious need, Charlie replies. Oh, I hope that poor boy who fell over the log while eating his breakfast and ran away will recover and go back. Makes us laugh uproariously when zip, whirr, over we go and lay on our side, the wheels still revolving. The grade just here, level from the ground excavated by the miners, saved us from a serious mishap. To have rolled to the canyon river would have damaged us greatly. As it is, we cannot recover the track without that descent. So we twist our car upright. We are fastened in our seats, square it to the hill, and down we go, losing our breath as we plump, splashing into the water. Our bonny wheels take paddle-stroke and carry us, laughing over and up the opposite bank to the track there, in its sinuous course. <laughs> we laugh too quick, says father. That friend at whom we laughed dropped that fork on the rail. <laughs> I see him behind that boulder. We leave the narrow gauge track at its terminus without stopping, and have no other special accident in this vicinity. The sun has chased frost, and rose hues the higher snow peaks. Sierra Nevada, snowy, in its most interesting locality, is around. Having come on the narrow-gauge railroad that connects the two largest and oldest of the mining cities with the broad-gauge of the Central Pacific, we are rounding out on the latter, over the famous Cape Horn. Spring is in her first freshness. We sniff its fragrance, as we continue to do, following its pioneer march until our arrival at our destination to enjoy our summer at the pole, where it is most enjoyable, and the only tolerable season. From apparently bare ground are flying the cyclamen banners of the Johnny Jump-Up. The blue sage, sundial, gives a lake of national colors, interspersed with the scarlet of the gorgeous fireweed, whose leaves and blossoms glow alike. May gleefully reaches out to a dogwood lily, artist's favorite, 
then snatches a tuft of pink primrose that covers a bank and decorates its edge, while I cook the breakfast upon our steam heater. It is so late, I make it serve for dinner also. Putting omelette and ripe strawberries beside the spinach and wild duck. As I finish, May emits a long whistle, as a red-breasted linnet, the first, flies close to us to get our sweet food company, then sings to earn it and call its family. The chaparral is faintly green, but the manzanita, sung of poets or ought to be, in its immaculate green leaves adorning the winter, with red stems of eternal beauty, is covered with pink waxen sprays, as fragrant as it is like the lily of the valley. A momentary regret comes to leave California this worshipped shrub. Its blossoms develop to little green apple fruit, the size of peas, of edible flavor. Manzanita is the Indian name for little apple. Charlie appreciates my feelings as he calls out, Take a last look, when father, to turn the tide, passes the muffins. Our glance down the mountainside falls upon a ranch, tiny in its depths. A maid of midget size throws invisible corn to mice-sized chickens that flock around. Charlie hurls deftly a cracker toward them that falls far short upon the mountainside. <laughs> my spirits rise. To be here sings a grateful paean in my breast. To write it is not half the story. I remember lovingly the sister cities left behind, mining born and golden reared, with their Californian continual lawns social halls and grand hotels for the floating population this last much improved by the efforts of the salvation army who have charmed the crowds to good behavior as they enjoy appreciatively their sweet-voiced pleadings i look out at the country dotted with quartz mill chimneys with their heavy roar as the heavy stamp crushes the granite to free the gold imprisoned in their bastille to all we bid good-bye as we turn cape horn and though still among the clouds we see and hear the rushing river below as all streams here are given to chatty hilarity i think once more of the one where oft i have walked out on trailed path I muse on until, in time, we salute the desert plain, with its sagebrush and dog cities. Stations are not hailed by us, as in time a small crowd awaits us. Silently we appear, like a shadow disappear. Our seats are so constructed that we can stand and exercise rock or lie down at ease partaking our meals without alighting we have no occasion to lose time our casing open banners flying i have brought handwork and books 
father is carving on some queer rotary wheel that gives three separate motions charlie and may on the seat in front amuse each other and call us to the special sights chicago we leisurely arrive and traverse silently street after street sadly impressed that the continual magnificence and equality of buildings found nowhere else was dearly bought citizens are crowding our path obstructing our progress with their progressive ardor for someone has telegraphed them of our intended exploration to our unexpected aspirations unheeding our desires they hurrah lustily for our success <laughs> thanking them we start on grateful in our hearts for their sympathy we do not stop in any other city even passing over the suspension bridge quite silently though lost in ecstasy at its cataract view evading detection in new york we whirl over the brooklyn bridge without minding the many curious gazers arriving at coney island beach though a storm is coming on we light our interior and in the dusk are about to drop into the sea a shout goes up and strong hands hold us near us is a carriage whose horses we had frightened in it is an aged man of martial bearing who recognizes my father oh it is you is it meandering at night like a firebug turn around now and go home with me he said cordially haven't time we are bound to the north pole hurrying up so quickly we break away and sink beneath the toppling waves pelted and tossed all night we welcome daylight but flash crack roar we draw ourselves closer together and sink in the depths beneath the turmoil to find other disturbance a massed army of swordfish hold battle-front with glowing eyes to an opposing array of giant whales who ponderously coming lash the sea into a vortex the two columns colliding the first leap in white streaks curl and land on the latter's backs dip and die their swords the whales shake them off and beat them to death in myriads to be followed by myriads more until the sea is red when suddenly the cavalry swords fly disappearing in the distance the victorious artillery the whales blow themselves weariedly we go closer to them too close as they are a warrior band a big general opens his mouth towards us disconcerting to our stomachs we beat a hasty retreat to a distance where we watch the camp followers a jumbling mass of veritable sea monsters when all is quiet we rise to the surface to find it quiet there too the sun shining brightly on an iceberg whose edge 
sending up a few whale-spouts, resolves it into a fountainous white island. I muse aloud. Does the under-war cause the upper-war, or vice versa? What is war? Oceans, elements, and life as restless as man. Plant life and rocks also struggle and upheave. Why is war? Resulting only to change. God's evolution, but a program of variety. I study it thus, in inspiration, hoping it leads to foredestined improvement. I am hearing the word arbitration. Oh, yes, papa. When arbitration stops men's wars, will the elements follow? And what then? End of chapter 1